0: Ever wonder why grad students in STEM fields seem to be in school their entire lives? Maybe you don't, but I certainly do. My name is Luis Colaretolo, and I'm a student at the University of Guelph doing what I think will get me a PhD in food science. This is my mm, 10th year of college, so I ought to be done in another maybe 12 or so, who knows? It's not just classes and assignments. We do a lot of research, we try to find the answers to scientific questions, and then we want to publish our results. So, why does this take so long? Today, I'm talking with June Teichman, a recently escaped graduate student. We went to undergrad together years ago, and to this day, I'm not entirely sure that I've ever met someone who has rolled their eyes at me any more than June has. We studied together, did projects together, and even survived when I drove a nine-passenger van for five hours across the state. June and I both got masters, where we tried to find the answers to a scientific question, and today June is going to help us explore the process of answering these questions. This episode in itself is kinda meta. Instead of discussing an exact topic, we're gonna be talking about how we come to understand a topic. We will be discussing how we come to know things because we don't know everything, and that's why you're listening to We Know Some Stuff. Hi June, how you doing today? I'm doing good, Lewis. How about you? I'm doing great over here. Could you do us a favor and walk us through your educational history?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I started at the University of Delaware with my bachelor's with you. Yo one and only. Yeah, so I did my bachelor's in food science, so that was four years, and then I moved over to Penn State University, also in food science, to do my master's. That was two years, and now I'm working at a startup in Connecticut, and I've been here for about a year now. Also still food science, basically.
0: All right, you know, food science, true and true. So June, you are going to talk to us today On a topic that is more or less a topic. We are going to go meta on We Know Some Stuff today. We're going to talk about experiment design, planning, and how we do science. Yeah. So tell us what your specialty was in your master's.
1: So in master's, we were studying the gut microbiome. And the planning of those experiments was pretty intense. Because microbiome is basically all the collection of bacteria that lives in your gut, in your lower intestine. And as you can imagine, it's difficult to study bacteria that are in a body, it's difficult to figure out what they're producing and what they're interacting with. So in order to get reliable results, you really need to plan out your experiment well to figure out what you're looking at and control those variables.
0: Right. With anything though, you gotta do a lot of planning to figure it out. But I, I know that the, the human gut microbiome, the collection of all the little bacteria and guys and, and molds and yeast and all that kind of stuff, that's in your small intestine and in your large intestine, that's really something we still don't know, right?
1: Yeah. The exact composition of like a healthy microbiome is definitely not set. It differs where you're where you are. Generally you can kind of break up microbiomes. Eastern and Western microbiomes, because mm-hmm. the diets in those areas are so different. But what is ultimately healthy is, is still to be determined.
0: Oh, yeah, that's crazy. You know, it, you know, we think like in 2020, we have all these kind of things figured out, but we're not even close. We're just scratching the surface of this point. Yeah, part.
1: for sure. I mean, if you think of sequencing, that was really technology that opened the door to understanding microbiomes. So we started with the human genome, and then we got to bacteria, and now- With microbiome studies, you're really trying to get the sequences of all of the bacteria or all the yeast and molds in your
0: gut. So uh, could you do us a favor and just kind of explain what you mean by sequence?
1: Yeah, so sequence of your DNA basically uh, tells you um, everything that's going on in your body. It dictates your hair color, your eye color for bacteria. It dictates whether you're coli or salmonella. And when you sequence a bacteria, you can tell its identity.
0: Okay, so it's kind of like a name tag yeah. for, for a bacteria. Love it. And and you, you mentioned that we started with the human genome. Yeah. And that was like a big project at that time, wasn't it? They had like scientists from all over the world doing this, all trying to just figure out uh, Homo sapiens, mm-hmm. more yeah. or less.
1: Yeah, I think it took a decade to do the whole genome over human. And now we're doing sequencing on you know, millions of bugs at once in a day
0: yeah so you you do this yeah. this is this is something you do like every day at work
1: well, i'm not sequencing anymore but
0: <laughs> oh no no not anymore yeah. okay but in
1: grad school yeah we were doing lots of sequencing and it was just amazing how much data you got out of it like
0: yeah it's unbelievable it's it's i stay away from alive things that's not my thing in the lab i'd rather do math than like oh deal God. with anything alive math is so hard <laughs> i know it's disgusting I'm just, I'm an unhappy person, but that's beside the point. Um, So, you know, I I look at sequencing. I think that there's such an interesting field. And to think that it took you to take uh, like 10 years to do the human, now you're spitting in a tube or you're swabbing your cheek and sending this information off to like Ancestry and like places like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of companies now like that. 23andMe is a really big one that my sister actually just sent her Oh yeah. both my sister and I are adopted so yeah we sent out samples to see if we could like kind of track who our family was and of course we're both mm-hmm. Chinese so it's like you are 93% Chinese it's uh, <laughs> like yeah something something very obvious like that but
0: so are you more similar than you thought you were
1: no we're both, before we're both you did like 98% East Asian like Han Chinese which is oh. the, the vast majority of um, I guess the ethnicity the genetic ethnicity of people in China so not not a big surprise there.. Yeah, well,
0: yeah. All right, so okay, we, we got the sequencing. we're We're figuring out all these name tags for this bacteria and everything that's going on. Um, why? Why? Why sequence? Yeah, why bother?
1: Yeah, so we're finding out more and more that the differences we are calling between bacteria are very arbitrary. So, We once thought Shigella, this type of bacteria was, is is now actually um, determined to be a type of E. coli. And we were only able to tell that via genetics before when we were looking at maybe how it acted when it was in the gut or how it metabolized a certain type of food. Um, That's how we categorize bacteria. But now with sequencing, we were able to actually see the genetic code, the very, very fine print name tag of this bacteria and we're finding that they're more similar than we thought they were. So the lines between bacteria are much more clear with sequencing than with any other kind of technology.
0: So we're, we're kind of figuring out something along lines like uh, Shigella is like the uncle twice removed of E. coli kind yeah, of situation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like uh, so it,
0: that tree is not branching as much as we thought yeah, it was.
1: It definitely shouldn't be categorized as a different genus, which it is now. So genus E. coli, Salmonella, Listeria. Mm-hmm. So they're not that distant. They shouldn't be that distant to each other. But it's also difficult because with animals like tigers or bears, we have different species when they can no longer mate with each other. But with bacteria, Mm -hmm. that's very different because they don't sexually reproduce. It's a lot of asexual reproduction. It's a lot of sharing of plasmid, these little circular genes that are not part of the, the actual genome of the bacteria. So it's basically like if I could give you a piece of my hair, and then you sucked it up into your body and then started growing black hair. So that's mm-hmm. what bacteria can do. And the fact that they can do this makes it very, very difficult to classify them as similar or different to each other. But with sequencing, you could see the actual gene that controls this and you're able to, with much more clarity, distinguish between them.
0: Okay, wow, super cool. That, I mean, it's amazing stuff. I, I like have a, a such a basic understanding of it and you've just like opened my mind so much more. Oh,
1: great. <laughs> yeah. that's great yeah it's such a powerful technology and it it is really hard to get across how much it it's open stores
0: well let's talk about what it takes to plan an experiment that's focused around sequencing
1: Oof. where do you start with how to plan an experiment so i guess you should always start with a hypothesis no matter what kind of experiment mm-hmm. you're doing so, remind us real quick hypothesis hypothesis is what you think will happen if you do x y and z so I think if I eat fiber, then my microbiome will be healthier. And then you basically, from there, figure out your variables. So starch would be, or fiber would be the variable you're testing. And then your outcome then would be healthier. And it's...
0: Yeah, so what, what is healthier? It's
1: best if you can define that as closely as possible. So with health, if you're looking at generic human health, we look at biomarkers, we'll call them. So something like weight. If your weight is lower, you're generally considered healthier. If your cholesterol is lower, you're healthier. And we do the same thing with microbiomes. So if you have a more diverse microbiome, if you have more different types of bacteria, you're considered healthier. So that's one way to look at overall health. Um, You could also look for specific bacteria. We know certain species are better for your gut or seem to be producing more um, helpful compounds that the human body needs. So those are kinds of things you can measure as making your gut healthier. And usually with microbiomes, you're trying to measure a couple of those uh, to make sure you're not biasing your data in any way. So in planning, you want to pick those outcomes um, and figure out how you're going to measure them. And sequencing, especially if you're looking for one specific type of bacteria, sequencing is definitely the way to go.
0: So you talked about the diversity of bacteria. That means, you know, there's a whole lot of, uh, there's some E. coli, there's some salmonella, there's some... Uh, shigellas which are coli's, which we just learned but so so that diversity is having a lot of uh, many different things yep. and, and we've talked in previous episodes how not all bacteria is bad bacteria there's exactly. good bacteria out there yeah. but uh, what about the numbers like what if you have more of one kind and less of another how do you figure that out
1: so sequencing will generally tell you that you won't it's a little bit difficult to get absolute numbers um, But you can get relative numbers. So you could say I have twice as much of bacteria X as bacteria Y. Um, and sequencing, based on the number of sequences you get, essentially, you can tell how many bacteria that relates back to.
0: Okay, so let's set up our experiment right now. Uh, what is your favorite food, June?
1: My favorite food? It definitely wouldn't help your microbiome. It's a ramen. Which is...
0: <laughs> All right. We're, we'll, do, we'll do that. We'll, do, we'll determine right now over the radio if ramen is going to make you less healthy. Okay. So we've determined our hypothesis. We're going to say, does ramen make you less healthy? What are we going to look for, June?
1: Um, so if you're just looking at the microbiome, then we could, we could start just by looking at diversity. Does the diversity of your microbiome decrease, aka become less healthy as you increase your ramen intake?
0: Okay, so yeah, we'll we'll go with diversity. I love it. We're we got our hypothesis, we got our biomarkers. Now how do we go from hypothesis to biomarker?
1: So now you have your hypothesis, and now we have a way to test the biomarker, right? To measure it with sequencing. So now we have to figure out how we're going to do the test. So the ultimate question is if me eating this ramen will change my microbiome. So you could have a human that is, not eating ramen, and then you get their microbiome before they eat ramen, and then you feed them ramen, and you measure it after, and see how the diversity changes.
0: So, that, that introduces, in my brain, so many possible sources of things going weird. Yes,
1: yes. And so, um, there are definitely lots of points of error. Just being a human, if you're you know feeling stressed that day, your stress levels could affect how you digest the food and everything like that. So usually to avoid that, people start simplifying the system so they don't have to deal with a whole human being. Mm-hmm. So you could move it um, to an animal, and that way you can control their environment a lot more. They're just mice are just more simple creatures than humans. Then you have the issue of, you know, feeding a mouse ramen.
0: <laughs> I bet they'd like it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I guess you could. they would just put their whole mouth in a bowl
0: and just go for it. Can you imagine that? That sounds like amazing. Little
1: mouse ramen bowls. You can make the bowls. Make mini ramen for them.
0: <laughs> God, I just want to be in a bowl of ramen. Ooh, a human-sized bowl of ramen. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Alright, okay, so we can do the mouse. Is there anything more simpler than a mouse? Yeah, you could
1: start going to... Uh, so those models are called in vivo, because they're inside. living
0: In vivo, alive. Yes, exactly. Okay.
1: But we can go in vitro. So I don't know what that stands for in Latin or that root word.
0: Uh, nor do I. Yeah,
1: but basically it means going outside of a living model, going into a test tube, essentially. Now we mm-hmm. have a test tube that just has the microbiome. So you just have the bacteria and you can feed it the ramen and see what it spits out at the end. And that's what actually what I did in my experiment. I wasn't about to like go into humans and, and start doing research on them. We just uh, looked at everything in a test tube. But mm-hmm. the super fun part about this is you still want to get a representative of a microbiome as possible. And since we don't know the actual composition of a microbiome, we can't just buy bacteria, essentially, and put them all together in a test tube. We actually have to get microbiome samples from humans. And the best way to do that is by using their poop.
0: Of course yeah. it is. Why does science always come down to poop? Yes.
1: Yeah. So we got a bunch of human humans to donate their poop to us. And then mm-hmm. we use their poop to simulate a microbiome community in a test tube.
0: So uh, now <laughs> I don't want to get into the nitty gritty, yeah. but how do you determine whose poop is like better? Like, how, was there a questionnaire? Was a questionnaire? Like, what?
1: Yeah. So no pregnant people. Um, okay. No alcoholics. No mm-hmm. history of smoking. Generally disease free. So no diabetes, those kinds of, kind of, um, chronic diseases, we tried to keep out of our study. But in general, that's those are the major control factors for a lot of human studies. Um, things like overall diet are hard to track and it's very hard to tell if someone's being honest about it. Things like age sometimes are controlled for if you're interested in a certain age group or gender sometimes controlled for. But in general, our survey was very brief, just are you a typically healthy human being?
0: All right, so you, you you chose your poop candidates. You <laughs> grabbed their. I imagine you had to probably sequence their uh, their stool at some point, right? Yeah. So we didn't sequence.
1: Um. Actually, uh, yeah, I guess we did sequence twice at the beginning before, and then at the end to see their their final communities. And so that that was the fun part because uh, you're to sequence things. You basically just want the DNA, so you don't need all like kind of nasty stuff you might associate with poop that comes with it it's just dna okay yeah
0: so that was that was the easy part in terms of handling samples you you also said fun at one point i just i don't (laughs) want you don't have to comment on it but i just want to say that out on the radio waves you said that that was the fun part continue yeah
1: yeah well it's always fun telling people that you work with poop it's like (laughs)
0: Yes, <laughs> so it's a good, okay. like, a, what, you go to Thanksgiving dinner and, you yeah. know, your aunt or something asks what you're you doing. You get a lot
1: of different reactions, and most people try to be polite about it, obviously. <laughs> of course. But you could see, like, behind the thin veneer, their, <laughs> their <laughs> smile, they're like, what? What is science? <laughs> why?
0: Why why do we why? do these things? Yeah. All right, so you, you got this community of bacteria. You figured out what's a good bacteria community to start with. You're ready to feed your bacteria some ramen. Uh, Do you just drop a noodle into the test tube? What do we do?
1: Yeah, that's essentially what we did. So we were, yeah, it's very simple. We were studying resistant starch, which is starch that is generally, there are a couple different types, but generally it's starch that has been cooked and then cooled. So you can think reheated Mm -hmm. potatoes, reheated pasta, things like that. Um, And we found it in this nice powdered form. So I guess we didn't drop like a whole noodle in. We ground it up a little bit. So it's a powder, mm-hmm. so its surface area wasn't an issue. Um, I dropped it in the test tube with the poop. We gave it some nutrient-rich media, so the bacteria didn't just have the poop and the noodle to eat off of. They kind of was um, a general nutrient composition because their ramen isn't a complete meal. So we mm-hmm. added some of the nutrients back in, but just very base levels, so the bacteria could survive. But their main energy source was from the things we fed it. So in this example, the main energy
0: source would be ramen. Okay. All right. So you were dropping in a little bit of food. We're letting them eat it up. And what do we do after that? Yep. So we let the fermentation, we
1: call it fermentation because it's basically digestion without oxygen. So we let it ferment for 24 hours. And then we took a little bit of the liquid out and that liquid had all the bacteria. Well, we assume That if we homogenize the sample well and take a little bit of it out, that sample has a representative amount of the bacteria. So that's another source of error. We can't sample the whole, you know, 100 mil culture we had. So you take a little bit of a representative sample out and then we purify it. So we just have the DNA and then we send it off for sequencing.
0: Okay. So, uh, okay. Then you look at this, you send it off for sequencing, you wait a few Mm -hmm. days, it comes back. Um, You read the results, and that took you about one week. So what took you two years to get a master's?
1: Repeating everything a million times. So after, So I think the longest part is probably planning everything. That process of figuring out what your hypothesis is and how to get it to be a testable question, and then making sure that your testable question has a measurable answer takes a long time of planning everything out. And then once you're finally done planning... You have to repeat your experiment because uh, if you do something mm-hmm. once and it works, maybe it was just a fluke. If you do something twice, it still might be a fluke because, as we talked about before, there's a lot of error, including my own human error of, you know, being too grossed out and and making a mistake somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah. So could could you actually give us a few examples of just like you know daily mistakes you might have made? Yeah.
1: So science in science, you try to be as precise as possible. So we have these. Um, you know, balances to measure out exactly how much poop we're adding. We have, we call them pipetters, but they um, distribute or aliquot.
0: Yeah, they're like little uh, turkey basters. Yeah,
1: turkey basters that measure out exactly how much liquid you want. Um, So every machine you use in the lab is going to inherently, all by itself, have some kind of error because machines are not perfect. So there's that. Then there are human biases. So if I am running late to the lab one day, and instead of my culture going for 24 hours, it's actually closer to 30 hours, Um, that can happen as well. So there are these sources of error that happen with each experiment that you really can't control. You can try to plan for, but you can't really control them. And so to kind of um, even out all of the error that's going on, you do an experiment two, three, maybe four times to try to get average and smooth out all that noise that's happening because of your error
0: okay so this brings up a a a dangerous topic i would say and i and i don't want to you know throw you a question and have your entire life (laughs) spiral out of control but all this error why should i trust anything you're saying today
1: yeah yeah that's definitely a question that should be answered sooner rather than later (laughs) yeah in the planning stage that should come to mind every time. It's like, wow, is the data I'm going to produce from this experiment trustable? And one of the ways you get around that is by doing replicates. So, yeah, you might have error, but if you do something 100 times and you still get the same result, then it's probably a real result. It's probably going to happen if you do it 101 times. In planning your experiment, you want to know okay, I'm going to get this much error, so I need to do this many replicates, so I can still trust my results. Um, Or if your error is too high, maybe you have to simplify it. Maybe you can't do this on a hundred humans because you don't have the resources. So instead you go to the test tube model, and that way you only need 10 test tubes to do it because your error is so much lower. There are a lot of different ways to get around um, your error being too high and being able to get
0: reliable results. Super interesting. So by changing how we do the experiment, maybe if we look at it and we say the mouse was too risky, we weren't able to get the right results, we can step back and say, all right, you know, maybe we're not ready for the mouse, we can try the test tubes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then eventually we can get to the human, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that's rare and expensive, isn't it?
1: Yes. So trials With humans are very difficult to do. There are a lot of, um, I guess, protective measures I would call them in place to make sure no one's doing anything unethical, and also, um, and that process costs a lot of money to make sure everything Mm -hmm. gets through.
0: Yeah, I know when you're watching TV, there's always that like uh, the the sitcom that has like the get rich quick episode where they're taking a whole bunch of weird oh, drugs yeah. for like yeah. scientific experiments. It's true. Not how it happens, yeah. but kind of.
1: But kind of. So I just did my master's. So I was only there for two years, which is one of the reasons why we didn't go to humans. I was only there for two years, but there was a PhD student who joined the lab after me. So he's going to be there for four, five, six years. And so he's actually doing the human trial version of my experiment. So these people are eating the resistance starts that we were testing. And they're getting paid $20, maybe four times, to eat this resistant starch and give us their poop.
0: That's beautiful. You know what? Honestly, if someone paid me to eat pasta and poop, yeah, (laughs) dream job.
1: Yeah. So if you get over the ick factor, there's a lot of money and research that people like really need you to do
0: yeah absolutely and you know you could usually find these opportunities by looking at uh uh, the web pages for a lot of different academic departments yes
1: yeah i know Um,
0: so there's opportunities out there guys you know if you want to eat stuff and poop (laughs) by all means i mean if anything you know you're going to do it anyways get paid
1: yeah exactly um but there are much more palatable studies as you can imagine in food science it's not about the Mm -hmm. end product there's a lot of stuff going on with the before product as well, the actual food.
0: Of course. We, we got some nicer things out there. I actually participated in a human study um, where they took our blood after we ate a salad oh. um, with a, a special salad dressing. Um, it paid actually, like, really well. Um, in fact, <laughs> I, I say... As a joke, I I went on a vacation with the money because normally oh I don't go on vacations. I can't afford that, but they paid well, so I went on this vacation. And and every time you know someone you know made a comment about it, I'd say, "Well, yeah, I sold my blood to go on this vacation."
1: <laughs> wow, that's also a great conversation starter. Yeah, and at Penn State where I went to grad school, there's a whole sensory department. So that's basically trying to determine the how you sense food, so taste, smell how you feel it, how it crunches in your mouth, what the crunch sounds like. Um, and they'll pay you $10 every time you come in too.
0: Yeah. I did those all the time. Back them. when I was at, yeah, back when I was at like university of Massachusetts, we would always get those like a $10 gift card to yes. something, or maybe they would give us cash. The cash ones were good. You know, we'd line up for the <laughs> cash ones. Yeah. Uh, And then they give you the saltine crackers afterwards to clean your palate. Love it. There's
1: always a spit cup in case you're not supposed to actually ingest the food.
0: (laughs) You know, that's the weird part. I never cared for it when you had to spit the sample out. Yeah, that wasn't
1: that cool. But still, you kind of got to eat it. You got to experience it.
0: You got to experience it without the the true end result. That's such a strange concept. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we got our hypothesis. We got our measurable things. We figured out how we're going to feed our bacteria, the ramen, and then we figure out that we're going to measure it when we're all done. All right. We've done all these experiments. What are you going to do? Go on Facebook and just like type up like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. This works. Or like stand on a mountain and shout.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think, well, the end goal of academia is to get a paper out of your results. I don't know. We were talking about this a little bit earlier. Maybe it would be good if more people posted on Facebook about the results. Um, But I'm skipping a few steps about analyzing the actual results.
0: All right. Let's get there. Let's go from we got results to analyzing results.
1: Yeah. So this this takes as long as running the experiment itself, weeding through all your data and getting it into a coherent conclusion. So your DNA, when you sequence it, you get one letter one data point for every piece of your I i don't know how scientific we need to get here
0: (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate the efforts i do
1: dna is made up of four bases right and so those four bases type out a code um and that code is your dna and so when you sequence you get every single letter in that code yeah so basically you get a small book for every bacteria every cell you sequence And of course, if you're looking at a microbiome, you're looking at billions of bacteria. So you're getting like a billion little books, little chapter books worth of data. Um, So you can't possibly go through that all by yourself. So with sequencing, people have started using um, coding essentially. So a lot of people have heard of Python, um, Java, C++, all these programs are used to deal with very large data sets. And so that's, That's what I had to do, essentially, learn one of these programs. I used a program called R that feeds all your data into it and kind of spits it out into something meaningful that you can look at. And the meaningful things it does is it turns each of those little books and gives it a title. It, It tells you that book is the book of Salmonella. It tells you that this is the book of E. coli. So you get a library of all the books in your microbiome. And you can say, okay, I see there are five Salmonella books here and 20 bifto books here, and then you can kind of start figuring out the composition, the diversity, um, the relative levels of all your bacteria, and putting together that picture of how healthy this microbiome
0: is. Solid. I, I have to first of all uh, commend you on how wonderfully <laughs> well put that analogy was, mm-hmm. the books, the chapters, the library. Love it. All right, so you get all this data. It's, you know, files with numbers and numbers and numbers and letters 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 long you squeeze it all together you sort it you put everything in the right place all right so now you know what you have great what are we going to do now
1: yep so our biomarker that we were looking for was diversity since now we have a list of all the bacteria we have and we know kind of the relative proportions to each other we can figure out diversity basically how many different types of bacteria we have There are actually different ways of measuring diversity. So you can just say, you know, I have 500 different types of bacteria. You could say I have, if we're looking at diversity, so in the world we have, you know, millions of different kinds of religions, but really it's mostly Christianity, Islam. So then that's another way of looking at diversity. Um, If there is a dominant species and if it takes up most of that population, then it's not really a diverse sample. You might have 100 different bacteria, but if 99% of it is salmonella, it's not a diverse population. So there are different ways of measuring diversity. Also, I'd like to say, we've been saying salmonella E. coli, these are not typically bacteria you find in a human gut. It's actually (laughs) not not a great thing if you see them there. I will say there are non-pathogenic E. coli. There's kind of just super unharmful uh, soil E. coli, all salmonella are considered pathogens to humans.
0: Oh, yuck. And pathogen bad, right? Pathogen's
1: bad. Pathogen's the thing that'll make you sick, either out the mouth or out the butt.
0: <laughs> you can you can tell that this is something I'm really... this is not my field. I had no idea. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, so, but you you did make a good point that there are a lot of good bacteria, and so the good bacteria in the gut are... They have very, very long, confusing names. We got Fecalibacterium. We got bifidobacterium. Yep, yep. Uh, we got Lactobacilli.
0: Important. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so there are all these bacteria that are good bacteria that you want to find in your gut. And um, the diversity, finding a bunch of those bacteria is much more important than finding, say, maybe just a rare bacteria that's not found in a lot of people. You were... Right now, based on our knowledge, we are looking for a specific handful
0: of bacteria. Okay, so awesome. You've determined how much more diverse you uh, have your, your test tubes, bacteria kind of culture, your, your collection is before and after ramen. If you don't feed them ramen, uh, if you feed them more ramen <laughs> than the other one. So, so we got a lot of this information. Um, I said earlier that maybe you put it out in a uh, Facebook post, but that's not really accurate. We want to publish this paper. So I'm guessing uh, one all <laughs> that's all it takes to publish a paper?
1: Publishing is the bane of my existence.
0: <laughs> it's for everyone. <laughs>
1: it's really hard to publish a paper. Why? Just, I mean, just synthesizing everything you've done is very difficult. Getting it out of your head, out of your notebooks, and onto a paper in a way that other people will understand uh, is very difficult. For me, for a grad student, usually they let you go on as long as you want. So you can write your thesis and it could be 500 pages and your advisor will probably hate you, but it'll be fine. For a paper that goes out to the scientific community at large, usually they only want maybe 7, 10, that's usually all I want to read in a paper. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, yeah. you know, anything above eight, I start complaining. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So really, you want your paper, your 500 page thesis to get boiled down into a seven page paper. And so figuring out what to cut out uh, is a huge process and figuring out um, how you want to word everything.
0: So you have a lot of information to fit in a really little spot. Yeah. And, you know, these papers, they still have some figures, they have some graphs, they have some charts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they have all of these elements of a report, like the maybe the scientific report we might have written in high school, mm-hmm. but they're dense.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely a balance between style, making things readable versus the actual content of what your research was. Um, but making sure your papers are readable is not something that's highlighted in the scientific community. Um, but if if you wanted to post it on Facebook, then style would become a very important part of of your writing. And I think it, that should be highlighted more. Because even if you're going cross-field, so if in me trying to explain what I'm doing to you, even, there's a little bit of disconnect. So going from food science, microbiology, to food science, um, I'm not exactly sure. Don't worry, I, <laughs> I
0: barely know what I do, so just continue
1: just going back and forth within different niches of the community can be difficult so uh, making your paper readable is a really important part of communication
0: super interesting all right so you write it it's you know nice compact it's seven pages and then you send it off and they print it or does anyone have to check it
1: yeah so most papers any journal you want to publish in is going to be peer-reviewed i think Uh, most (laughs) most So peer review is what it sounds like. They're on the journal board, I guess. They recruit people, other scientists, to read other people's papers. And once they read them, they'll send back suggestions and they will ultimately decide whether to accept your paper as is, accept it with a couple revisions, or reject it outright. I think most papers are sent back with a couple revisions.
0: yeah, I, I think it's rare, unless you're, like, super famous and super amazing what you do, to get, you know, accepted without a single suggestion. Yeah,
1: yeah, and sometimes the suggestions are are writing things where you can just include more information that you already have, and sometimes they're like, we need you to do one more trial of this experiment. In which case, no! In which case you need to go back and do more
0: work. Or sometimes you need to do a whole different experiment that you didn't do in the first place. For sure, though. Like, to prove.
1: Yeah, yeah. rejection varies or the the edits vary a lot Mm -hmm. greatly extend the your timeline
0: true and the hurt from the rejection that doesn't vary
1: (laughs) yeah i can't imagine yeah i mean i haven't oh so in my undergrad my grad school paper was not published yet my advisor is still working on it
0: oh we know that story
1: but in undergrad i did a thesis as well with dr neil my favorite food science professor that paper was finally published and I wasn't really involved with that. I think they, I wrote the the backbone of it and they wrote it by, they kind of added things on by themselves. That's amazing. Once it is finally passed all those hurdles that they put you through, it's an amazing feeling getting it published.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like you have a piece of work out there that is more or less scientific truth until proven wrong. And, and keep in mind, these papers can be redacted. Yes. Yes. For better
1: or for worse papers can be redacted.
0: Very important point. That's another show, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. All right, so uh, if, if we were to sum up, if we were to put this all together, uh, we walked from our hypothesis to what we wanted to see, we figured out how we were going to do it, we did the experiment, we got the data, we analyzed the data, and then we took all that analyzed data, we wrote something, we sent it off, they rejected it like three times, <laughs> and then we finally got a version and we published it. Awesome. And timeline, how long do you think that that takes more or less, June? Well,
1: it took me two years to do my study. And then, let's see, we're going on like two years post-grad to probably get it Mm -hmm. published. So four years minimum to to do an experiment and get it published, probably.
0: And, And honestly, that's the point I want to highlight, is that so much work... Goes into one single paper. Yeah, it's really incredible.
1: For sure, it's remarkable. So I hear about labs that publish multiple papers a year, and it's like, do you guys have lives outside of labs? <laughs> I can't imagine it. it yeah. Yeah, because
0: that is something else. Even if
1: you have multiple people working on multiple projects, like that timeline doesn't speed up. I don't think
0: it just gets more complex. Yeah. If anything, yeah. And then what about the error that your lab mate introduces? You don't know if they're doing it the same way you're doing it. For sure, yeah. God, I don't, this is depressing. I don't <laughs> want to talk about it anymore. All right, so June, could you wrap things up? Could you give us a moral of the story? What uh, what do we have to take away?
1: So the moral of the story here is that going from hypothesis to finished paper isn't just those one, two, three steps. There are breakdowns at each point of it, so making your hypothesis... You have to figure out your variables. You have to figure out your end result as well. Um, The next step building your experiment is figuring out what your error is, how many replicates you need, where you're getting your samples from. So there are increasing complexity with every step you take. And it's a very long, complex process. But at the end, you have this beautiful, well thought out, well researched piece of knowledge um, for the world to see.
0: That's beautiful. I honestly, like, my my heart is warm after hearing all of that. I, yeah. I love a good scientific moral.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's good to think of the bigger picture when you're in the weeds trying to figure out, you know, what your error is and if your experiment means anything. Because at the end of the day, you are going to have, you will have something.
0: Yeah, that's like a philosophy kind of situation, yeah. which is just so far out of my scope. <laughs> like, does it matter? Yeah. What's the purpose? I don't want to do that today. Yeah, I think, I think we'll, we'll call it quits at that. Yeah. All right, so thank you so very much, June, for our meta data analysis slash explanation of how we might do an experiment. It has really been a pleasure talking to you today.
1: It's been really great talking to you, Lewis. It was great catching up.
0: Our conversation today with June was really an in-depth look into the process of determining the answer to a scientific question. And we walked through all of the steps and outlined a timeline that made us say that maybe we might be done answering a question after four years of work. And through the process, we learn a lot and we make a lot of mistakes because true to essence, we don't know everything. So that's why at the end of our episodes, I think it's really important that we have a quick fact check or re-clarification section. Just to tie any loose ends or, you know, admit that, well, we probably got a few things wrong because we were still learning. And that's just that. So to clarify a few things that may have got a little lost in the weeds. Sequencing is us trying to find out what the DNA of a specific species of a bacteria might be. So you may have remembered learning about DNA at some point in your life, and it's this double helix sort of structured thing that has a whole bunch of bases. And these bases are more or less the, the letters of the alphabet. So the way that words are spelled out are very similar how our DNA spells out. But each and every single human being has their own spelled out DNA. And no one's is really identical, for the most part. But the same thing happens with bacteria. But when a lot of that DNA is similar, we can say that they are the same species. And this allows us to look into a group of bacteria and be able to determine what we have based on the similarities of the DNA that we're reading. So we assemble these codes together using a lot of fancy steps and extractions and this and that and a machine and math and databases, and we're able to determine what we have when we're looking. So through sequencing, we can basically tell what we are looking at, and that is one way To go around looking in a microscope, we don't have to stain things and look at them, and we don't have to measure what they eat, like how they metabolize sugars and things like that. This way is pretty direct, and it provides a lot of information. It's kind of the hot thing right now. And as far as getting things wrong, you experienced it as it happened. Microbiome is really not my field, so there were a few times in the episode that I said we might be able to find salmonella. Then Jude was very polite to point out that you probably shouldn't be finding salmonella in your gut. That would be very bad. That would mean you have a poisoning, or food poisoning typically, that is called salmonellosis. So it just goes to show that sometimes I don't really know what I'm talking about. And that is why we are always checking each other and trying to clarify things like that. Other than that, we've thought about it for a while, we've re-listened to what we said, and we don't think we got anything else wrong. But that is always subject to change, because who knows? New evidence, maybe we find out things that we never knew before. Maybe someone answers a question and spends four years trying to answer it to prove that everything we said was wrong. It's all possible, and that's just the wonderful thing about science. So it just goes to show that we really don't know everything. And that's why I want to thank you for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.